What are you getting? Well, I'm getting a bounce, mm -hmm. um, but there's a lightness within it as well. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, just, honey, it's a yeah. very tricky color, and I'll tell you why. Mm -hmm. Terry and uh, I worship an unconventional deity, the power of another dimension. Now, you're not going to read about this dimension in a book or in a magazine or uh, in a newspaper uh, because it doesn't exist anywhere except in my own mind. Well, good afternoon. This is the David Allen Show. Good afternoon. Um, <laughs> this uh, this day is a sad day. It yeah. yeah. Apparently. Prince Roger Nelson, Rogers Nelson, died today, April 21, 2016. He was an American singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, record producer, and actor. He was renowned as an innovator and was widely known for his eclectic work, flamboyant stage presence, and wide vocal range. He was widely regarded as the pioneer of Minneapolis sound. His music integrates a wide variety of styles, including funk, rock, R&B, soul, hip-hop, disco, psychedelia, psychedelia, jazz, and pop. He played some strange-looking guitars, that's for sure. Yeah, for a while he uh, he didn't have a name. Yeah, if you uh, search the Wikipedia for him, uh, he's also known as a couple things. Uh, one of them, Jamie Starr. Christopher is another. Alexander Nevermind. The purple one, Joey Coco. Uh, the strange symbol that his mic stand was at times. Uh... Uh, an O with a left parenthesis, a plus sign, and a back V thingy. Uh, the artist formerly known as Prince, uh, or Taff Cap. You ever call him Taff Cap, Jim? Oh, all the time. But that was just, you know, when he came over to mm, our Oh, house. yeah. Yo, what's up, Taff Cap? Yeah, Taff Cap. Taff Cap. Born June 7, 1958. He was just 57. Hmm. Yeah, the uh, the unpronounceable symbol was later dubbed love symbol number two. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> uh, 
Wow. Oh. Oh, uh, man. That's... And his hair. That hair. Oh, you mean the the last hair that he had? The fro? Well, I mean, you shave up the side and the top is huge. He's in the 90s. That's where he was at. He was not a large man. No, uh, like crazy short, right? Like 5'2 or something like that. That's why he always stood on a stage alone. And he had he always had uh, these high heels or uh, pumps in his <laughs> shoes or whatever. <clears throat> that was Purple Rain from 1991. On an episode of the Arsenio Hall Show, actually. Mm. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. I had uh, I had one of his albums. Huh. Cassette. Uh, went to the movie. I was. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, he. He you went was, to the movie. You mean the Purple Rain? Yeah, the Purple Rain. Was movie. any good? Well, it was kind of a cutting-edge film at the, in his time, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, but why? It was about this this uh, person. I think they his name was the kid. Um, Billy. <laughs> oh, sorry, not not Billy. And it was just struggle. So it was basically a platform to play music. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I I didn't mind. I didn't mind his music. Um, I guess I know. Um, I liked uh, Morris Day. He used to play with them, um, or like would open for him and stuff. <clears throat> and I liked his music, but that was back. I mean, before Purple Rain. They say he sold over a hundred million albums, mm. making him one of the best-selling artists of all time. He won seven Grammy Awards, a Golden Globe Award, and an Academy Award. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2004, which was apparently the first year of his eligibility. How in the world do you become eligible for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I, yeah, really. Well, maybe it's uh, X number of years. Like in the biz? So in the can't be like a, a flash pan? Yeah, a one-hit wonder. <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, Meatloaf. <laughs> He's a one-record wonder, right? Well, no, he had a couple. Right, but... He was big back in the late 70s. Literally. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Probably and, one of the biggest rock stars out there, as far yeah. as physically. Yeah, but with a name like Meatloaf... Um, <laughs> I guess you can't really expect anything different. Yeah, you can kind of see that one coming. <laughs> uh, ranked at number 27. Rolling Stone ranked him at number 20. Him, it, whatever the sign was at the time. I think he was back to Prince when he... Just now, right? Before he died today. He what? Wasn't he back to Prince, being called Prince? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So we don't have to call <laughs> him know. the artist anymore. Whatever. Uh, the Rolling Stone ranked him at number 27 on its list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. Mm. On April 21, 2016, Prince died at his Paisley Park recording studio and home in Chanhassen, Minnesota. I was actually through there just about a week ago. Chanhassen? Yeah. I, I didn't go to Paisley Park, but... Yeah. That's kind of weird. Ay, 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 ay. Well, the uh, the music world can mourn, um, but like always, 
when you have these big pop icons that die, they take over the news cycle, which means lots of stuff, lots of it can get slipped by because everyone's making all these mem memoirs and all these, uh, you know, reviews of life of the dead guy. Yeah, well, it was amazing. I went uh, Drudge Report. He put everything purple. Google Google had, went purple, too. Google went purple. Yeah. Um, I mean, people everywhere losing their minds because mm -hmm. he died. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, if you like his music, that's great. Um, I just did. If, if he was uh, known to be a wonderful person who uh, spent his time and in ways that benefit benefited other people uh, I I think that the accolades perhaps should be uh, bestowed upon him but it sounded like he was an egotistical well just running down his list of names that he wanted to go by yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I mean how pretentious right excuse me you have to call me this now yeah or no 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 <laughs> Don't when call I me anything, in, right. <laughs> when I walk in the room, everybody needs to look away. Turn, turn your back. It Wasn't that one of the stories? Yeah, yeah, it was a friend. I talked to a friend again, and he said it was, he knew a guy who was in a, a boy band who, like, opened or played mm, in the bop, same tour with him. Mm, bop, do, I don't think it was bop. them. Oh, okay. <laughs> and anyways, uh, so when they would be eating and he would come in, I don't know if it was, like, in the same recording studio or whatever, Anyways, they were told that anybody who comes, if Prince comes in, no, what it was, the bodyguard would open up the door and say, Prince is coming in. And then everybody had to stand up and turn their backs to him so that they wouldn't look at him. Now, <laughs> did uh, he have a soapbox he had to climb on first? Yeah. <laughs> then he'd be up there so then they could see him? Well, I don't, uh, he, I guess he didn't. Yeah, I guess he turned, so he didn't know. Maybe, oh. I mean, maybe, maybe that, maybe that was it. Maybe that was it. I just, <laughs> um, I can't, I can't respect anybody who acts that way. So, I, uh, yeah. I mean, I understand people liking his music and whatnot, but and who knows? Maybe he was. I mean, I don't a better person. I, maybe, but I, I don't know anyone that revels in the death of anybody, and especially True. when they're young like that. Yeah. So it's unfortunate that he died. Sure. Yes. Let's absolutely. mourn. But the reality is it has absolutely no effect on me. I don't think it has any direct effect on anybody that I know. Yeah. Anyone. I mean, and I'm... The reality of the game, I have got a bunch of family that live nearby where he was from. So it's possible that some of my people would be closer than others around the, the country, world. So fewer degrees of separation than you. Potentially. Yeah. But I know none of them are going, oh, man, my favorite my favorite friend. Didn't... I don't know. Well, and a hundred and probably around 150,000 other people died today. and Yeah, no one's talking about them. Nobody's talking about them. Although China. <laughs> Sounds like she died a few days ago, though. So right. Like Sorry. Oh, that's old. 600,000 people ago. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Half a million people. Yeah. Well, in other fun news, this is a really quick tidbit that I don't know if it's true, but it's funny. A boy sues his parents two, for $2 million uh, for being born a ginger. <laughs> well, I... Wow, I didn't know you could make money off that. Well, I think... That's I, just suing your parents for being who they are. Yeah, I think he's uh, lowballing it. 
I think he needs at least five million. <laughs> I wow. I just uh I I had heard about this too that if you are if you're a ginger, that you're less receptive to anesthesia, and uh you're more sensitive to pain. More sensitive. Yeah. I heard you had a higher tolerance for pain. Um. Well, I don't know. Anesthesia doesn't work. Maybe that's why you just have to suck it up. Yeah, yeah exactly. What other Too options bad, kid, do you have? You can't put any more in you. Your heart will stop. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> oh, brother. This is the David Allen Show episode... Something. 11? <laughs> 12. No. 12? Isn't, isn't it 12? Oh, man, I don't know. I'm losing my mind. Hey, I'll find out. I will... Uh... We really should do some prep. What? Shouldn't we do prep once in a while to figure this stuff out what before the show? Is that what? I'm not quite uh, sure what you mean by that. Sorry about that. A little preparation. Uh, H? <laughs> um. No, not H. <laughs> no, it is 11. It is 11. 11 You're right. I know. It's terrible. I was just one off. Mm-hmm. Felt like 12. This out of... This was uh, April 17, 2016. Uh, the headline, this is the, uh, <laughs> this is a news or an online newspaper that is, uh, they call themselves the watchdog of a county in Illinois. So, I don't know. Who knows? Uh, their headline, costly broken wind turbines give a college a whopping negative 99.14% return on their investment. So <laughs> Lakeland College recently announced plans to tear down broken wind turbines on campus after the school got $987,697.20 in taxpayer support for wind power. The turbines were funded by a $2.5 million grant from the U.S. Department of Labor, but the turbines lasted for less than four years and were incredibly costly to maintain. Quote, the, since the installation in 2012, the college has spent $240,000 in parts and labor to maintain the turbines. The college estimates it would take another 100000 in repairs to make them functional again after one of them was struck by lightning and, sli- and likely suffered electrical damage last summer. School officials' original estimates found the turbine would save it $44,000 in electricity annually. Far more than the 8,500 they actually generated. Oh, ha. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's funny. I don't think that looks good. That that one doesn't look good on paper. Well, well at first it. Uh, wow. So <laughs> Can you imagine they said it was going to make forty-four thousand, save forty-four grand annually, but they had to actually pay out eighty-five hundred dollars. I um. Whoops. That's, that's great. Huh. That's what happens when the free market isn't involved in making decisions. Yeah, just because you mandate something doesn't make it a good idea. Well, they got a $2.5 million grant, right? Well, that worked out. Yeah. So Why it, are they tearing them down then? Well, because it's a, it's a white elephant. In the room. Hey. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, the they got $2.5 million from the feds. Yep. But they didn't have. But to. they also got almost a million from taxpayer support. Yep. So three three point four million. Three point four million dollars. Wow. Government at work right there. 
Government at work. I government wonder, at work. I, I bet they probably have a wind turbine uh, program or something at the college, too. Ooh. Well, then shouldn't they get, like, really cheap labor to fix these things? Um, yeah. Come on. Okay. They plan, Lakeland plans to replace the two failed turbines with a solar power system paid for <laughs> by a government grant. <laughs> Oh yeah, and then when that uh, geothermal, and then when that doesn't work, here we go. Uh, this, uh, is, this is a quote: gerbils. Quote from one of the. Uh, let's see, Ali is the person's name. Uh, Kelly Ali, the director of PR at Lakeland College. Uh, she said, "Quote: I assume it's a she. Sorry, it said <laughs> the photovoltaic." panels are expected to save the college between 50 <laughs> and $60,000 this year. Which means they're going to save them $10,000. No, they're going to pay out. Yeah, they're going to pay. <laughs> wow. Isn't that is great. Why why, <laughs> why would anybody why I wouldn't even give my know, opinion anymore. I mean, all you have to do is read up like three paragraphs and see that they said this before already. Oh, this is solar. It's better. <laughs> Wind power accounted for only 4.4% of electricity generated in America in 2014, according to the Energy Information Administration. You know, if they're going to wow. go to alternative energy... And that's the big thing. Get rid of coal. Try to do things uh, uh, ecologically uh, mm -hmm. beneficial to the to the world. Uh, maybe they should develop the technology Shh. first. Shh. Otherwise, uh, <clears throat> we're gonna not have electricity. <laughs> wow. David Allen Show. DavidAllenShow.com. On Facebook at David Allen Show. If you want to send us a message, David Allen Show at gmail.com. This is April 21, 2016. This is the Baby Elephant Walk from Henry Mancini. This is kind of interesting, this song. Oh, is that the name of the... I've always wondered what this song was. Really? Yeah. The Baby Elephant... Well, that would make sense, I guess. But it has... I mean, it's got an image of a rhino kind of running into a car. So that, to me, that kind of says... I don't know. Circusy. It's not, but... Um, today, in our business, I had some... They had fezes on. What would you call them? There were two men wearing fezes. Oh, um, uh, Shriners? No, okay, it must have been, yeah. Or Knights of Columbus. Oh, no, I, I think it was Shriners. Shriners, yeah, it is. Wanting me to pay uh, for the circus coming to town. And they had posters with them. Yeah, Shriners. The poster has an elephant sitting up like a dog and a tiger on it. This, this, is, the, this is the ad for the circus. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I said, ooh, tigers. <laughs> And the guy says, yeah, I don't think they're bringing a tiger. They're going to have elephants, and they're going to have uh, camels. <laughs> Why would your poster have a tiger on yeah, it if you're no, not going to yeah. have one? Yeah, really. Really. Yeah, that's false advertisement. Kind of. Yeah. 
Because all these poor kids that want to see a tiger eat someone are going to be disappointed. Yeah. Wow. DavidAllenShow.com. This is the David Allen Show, episode 11, davidallenshow.com. Hey, I, uh, you like watching movies? Some of them, yeah. Um, so, did you, did you watch uh, Lord of the Rings? Have you seen those movies? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I own them. Oh, you do? I do. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, now, if you watched them all back to back, how many hours? Oh, what be? are they? About two, two and a half a piece? So, what's that? Three? So, maybe eight hours? Yeah, at most, yeah. At the most. extended edition is like... 12, but yeah. Okay, 12 hours. That'd be a good day. Oh, well, no one in their right mind is going to sit there and go start to finish, are they? Well, okay, never mind. <laughs> I think the operative word is in their right mind. Okay, sorry. Well, I saw I saw this article. Um, evidently, uh, there's a there's a new movie coming out. Well, it's going to come out in about uh, four years, actually. That's that's going to be the release date. It's called Ambiance. And have you heard about this? No, do tell. Um, yeah, it's uh, they just had a they just uh, let out or uh, released a trailer for the movie, and um, uh, it's a little bit longer than the average trailer. The trailer is? Yeah, yeah. Is, is this a green box or red box? Um, I'm not sure. Um, but the, the the trailer 
that they released is uh, seven hours long. Um, so it's just uh, uh, because, you know, the entire film lasts from beginning to end 30 days. So what? about 720 hours. Um, what, so What? Was yeah. this filmed on film by chance? Uh, I'm sorry, what? Was this like filmed on actual film? Like reels of film, or was this digital? Uh, you know, I I would, I would think it would be digital. Anyways, um, basically, it's a uh, they call it an abstract nonlinear film, and it features two perform- performance artists on a beach in southern Sweden, and um, that's about it. Well, uh, there are no cuts. <coughs> It's described as a tale where space and time is intertwined into a surreal, dreamlike journey beyond places. So, uh, uh, it's odd. I just don't think that people want to see a real, like, true life, true to time, anything. On screen. Now, are you saying that because you're a close-minded <laughs> yes, non-artist? I think so. Okay. <laughs> okay. You're a linear thinking... Uh, uh, what does that misogynistic, mean? Misogynistic. Yeah, yes, obviously, I hate women. Um, <laughs> what, is, what is linear close thinking Close-minded. It's thinking literally. Excuse me? Duh. You know? Okay. You need to stop thinking... Linearly, you need to start thinking non-linearly, okay? Huh. What? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I'm looking at this guy, Anders Weberg. Weberg. Yeah. He's an artist. He's a Swedish artist working with... An okay. artist. This is art. <laughs> working with video, photography, sound. Uh, I want you to look this up. New media and installations. He is taking his heart, ripping it out of his chest, and exposing it to the world. For 720 hours. For 720 hours. Oh, oh okay. I just looked up uh, on the Wikipedia. Yeah. New media most commonly refers to content available on demand through the internet accessible on any digital device, usually containing interactive user feedback and creative participation. There's your new media. Oh. Common examples of new media include websites, such as online newspapers, blogs, or wikis, video games, and social media. Yeah. Huh. So this guy, he, he, uh, he works in that. He works in the new media. Thus, the video, photography... Sound and installations, and is primarily concerned with guess what identity. Oh, you think it's fluid? <laughs> hey, we'll get, I, uh, we'll get there later. <laughs> I, you know, I'm un, I'm unsure mm. about this. Now, this is art. Well, I oh, guess for, is this art? For, well, it says he coined the term. So yes, he coined this peer to peer art or P2P art. <laughs> Isn't it almost as easy to say peer-to-peer? Yeah, it is. P2P? P2P. P2P, peer-to-peer. Peer-to-peer sounds better. Yeah, it does. It's In 2006, less... 
the nine, eight, ten? Ten years ago. Yeah, I'm good at math. So, uh... Art Made for and only available on the peer-to-peer networks. Ah. Uh, the original artwork is first shared by the artist until one other user has downloaded it. After that, the artwork will be available for as long as other users share it. Like, the original file and all the material used to create it are deleted by the artist. There's no original. Eight films with a duration between 45 minutes and 12 hours were uploaded on the file-sharing networks in one copy, and their original was deleted. P2P art, the aesthetics of <laughs> ephemerality. Wow. Um, is Who this is going to watch? It's got to be. Who's going to watch this? I. Merriam-Webster defines ephemerality as plural. <laughs> ephemeral things the quality or state of being ephemeral okay ephemeral what'd Come you on. call me yes i called you something else let's look, let's look up ephemeral uh, no oh oh add old to it google okay google ephemeral lasting a very short time so, okay, this is the aesthetics of ephemerality. The appearance of, what, not lasting very long? <laughs> um, uh, why did you bring this up? Well, I... This guy's a nutcase. Yes, but... Um, Ab- about the is... film. I mean, should we do it about the film? Let's read through this. What? On December 31, 2000, 2020, the Swedish artist Anders Weberg... This okay. Is, uh, who wrote this? Okay, this is word for word. After more, mm-hmm, the Swedish artist Anders Weberg and his twenty-plus years relation with the moving image as a means of creative expression. It's possible that wasn't translated well. After more than three hundred films, he puts an end with the. He puts an end with the premiere of what will be a very long film. <laughs> Ambiance is 720 hours long. And will be shown in its full length on a single occasion, synchronized in all the continents of the world. And then guess what? It's deleted. It's destroyed. <laughs> Please, start that now. Yeah. There will always be longer films. How about we no, skip there the won't. middleman? Um... But and there is but this one. This, sorry, this grammar is awesome. There will always be longer films, and there is but this one will be the longest film made that doesn't exist. A totally different thing. This will be Anders' last film he will ever make. Yeah! Hey! hey. Woo! Woo! Do it! Do it! <coughs> so, if this is art. Then what is not art? In 2014, the short teaser, which is 72 minutes long, and that was the intent to convey the mood and tempo from the full piece, the teaser was online between July 4 and July 20 in 2014 and had amazing view counts, 1,622,147. Now, I bet money. A million six people didn't watch it in its entirety. No, they clicked on it and then they mm-hmm. clicked away. I would love to know what 
uh, whoever this P P to P uh, is how they count. Because I know face bag, when you put a video up there, if it rolls for three seconds, that's considered a play. Oh. You can put a 15-minute video. Three seconds of playing. Okay. Click. Oh. I um, I don't get this. Do you get this? Do you understand? <laughs> You're artistic. You're, you know, you you like art. You're into art. Art. Wait a second. What are you saying? <laughs> I'm not into this. Well, this is art. I okay. I like the idea of someone being totally out of the box. That's cool. But this is extreme. Yep. Although, oh well, hold on. This is no different than people jumping off. I don't know. Skydiving from you know orbit. How different is it, really? It's extremely, it's insane, it's nonsense. The guy's using verbiage that's just bizarre. But at least, at least somebody who skydive or skydove from orbit uh, could say that he accomplished something. I mean, you and I, if we wanted to and we had some money, we could we could start a film and do thirty one hours and call it existence. And say it's some contemporary view on the on the uh, hopelessness of man or something, and and throw the crap out there, and it would it would. I mean, there would be no difference. I mean, so what is art? I mean, is this art? <laughs> I mean, because there what what skill what. I mean, there's nothing to this, or you know, well, the, the crazy abstract art. You throw, you throw some paint at a on on a wall, and you call it, you you call it duplicity. David, how dare you? How dare you judge art? Oh, I just how did dare it. you judge these oh, people's I, art? Are oh, you kidding I dare. me? Oh, I dare. This guy, he quotes, he says, "I must be the most famous unknown filmmaker at moment." <laughs> You don't find me on Wikipedia or IMDb. Somebody added my recently because of ambience. And this means I'm not existing. Well, but here I am if you want to know more. That. My name is Anders Weberg. I'm 47 years old and was born in a small town called Landskrona in the south of Sweden. After moving around in Sweden and abroad, I have now settled with my family on a small farm in a village called Kolrod. I don't know, Swedish, Sweden, Swedish, where we live with animals, grow our own food, and just enjoying life. I define myself simply as an artist currently working mostly with the moving medium. Ambient filmmaking is a term I really like and feel fits very well. I have worked with film now full-time for almost 20 years now. I have always played music but wasn't good enough or handsome enough but wanted to be around the scene so I started making pop videos in the 90s and have done about 100 in the past and still do some from time to time. But I've been mostly involved in the video art experimental film scene. Other than that, I also play improvised video live in different constellations. What in the world is improvised video live? Oh, so th this is excellent. This is why this guy's doing this because he's got this thing. 
it still fascinates me. Have you seen the, the the short trailer that they showed in 2016? Came out last month, March 2016. The seven Have hour one, the short one. He's the short first short trailer with a duration of seven hours twenty minutes. Came out last month, apparently. Well, no, but but there was one in 2014 that was no 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 seventy two no. minutes. That was, <laughs> that was the short teaser. Okay, seventy two minutes but long. But you you notice the trend seventy two minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seven hour twenty uh-huh. minutes. Yeah, in two thousand eighteen, seven hundred and twenty no, hours. No, no. In two thousand eighteen, the longer trailer with a duration of seventy two hours is being put out. Two thousand eighteen. I. You know why there's this every duration two between, years. You know why it takes that long to upload it. <laughs> uh, who who is gonna? Mm. What kind of drugs do you have to take to sit through seven hours and 20 I, minutes? Well, nobody would. I mean, who would? Of course who, you would. Who, who goes to Burning Man? Um, who goes to Tomorrowland? Yeah, but I think... Have you heard of Tomorrowland? Yeah. Holy cow! Yeah. That is nuts. Oh, uh, what's the other one? Um, uh, Woodstock? Oh, wait, no, that was old. Man, I forgot. There's the not another one, there, is there? Oh, yeah, there's... there's there's hundreds of them around the world. The well, most kind of Tomorrowland uh, is EDM, make dance. Yeah, but there's a lot of them there. Uh, oh, oh man, I I'm having a brain fart right now. The name of the the types of festivals that they're called huge. <clears throat> if you're interested in Tomorrowland, go watch the uh, documentary on YouTube on uh, sorry Netflix called uh, This Was Tomorrow. Wow, it is nuts. This was tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I something is going on in the world, and it it feels like uh, some kind of really strange sea change, where the way people even think and it is changing. Um, the way people, uh, specifically younger people, look at things, it is becoming completely foreign um something's going on and and it's and it's hard to explain you know i was i was talking to my brother and he was um he was talking about in business now they're getting away from doing powerpoints and doing more infographic stuff is that because we are so dumb we have to have it actually displayed in a fun way so we can read it well it's like every big Everybody's becoming more ADD. Where you, you, I mean, how many people actually sit and read the entire article, like a newspaper or internet article? Read the words. It's usually like Drudge Report. You're looking at it's the headline. headlines, mm-hmm. and you might go into it, and you're just you're just trying to hit the sentences at the beginning of every. Uh, you look paragraph. for names and numbers just to see if it's anything important. Exactly, and that's how people. That's that's what's going on. That's what's go- going on. And I I think fundamentally it is changing the way we think. I think that technology is changing the way we think and we don't understand yet the impact that it's that it's having on people. But you look at people, you look at the lack of uh of uh even independent thinking or uh, f- following things logically uh, to their logical conclusion, it is it is stunning how 
how horrible uh, people are becoming in the West. Uh, I don't know. It's scary to me. Farther down on this page of this website, it's called thelongestfilm.com if anyone is interested. <clears throat> All this info is there. <laughs> Someone says, how do you even go about working on a film that is to be 720 hours long? I do have a general idea, mood, and feel for the whole piece at this moment, which I follow, but since I work with emotions and not a scripted dramaturgical piece, this changes a lot and will in the upcoming years. My process is that I collect glimpses of light with camera and take that with me into the computer where the real work begins. Taking all this glimpses and arranging and rearranging them into a flow that I feel represent the emotion I try to express. There is a lot of post-production behind it where I run all the captured material true through numerous processes. I use After Effects for that part. Holy cow. Right now I have finished 400 hours of finished film, so I am in a good position. I have to completely to finish what? at least one hour of editing film each week to make my goal for now. That means I need seven to eight hours of raw material each week. There is a lot of post-production to get the look that I'm after. In a recent magazine article, they calculated the following numbers of hours I need to finish it if I follow my current pace. This is mind-blowing. 5,760 hours of shooting. That's 240 days. 8,640 hours of post-production. 360 days. That's one year solid of post-production. But that's one year of 24-hour days. It has days. to be. Yeah. Because total, total hours? Full-time full -time job, 40 hours a week is 2,000 hours a year. Wow. Yeah, to total 14,400 hours. That's 600 days. So why 720 hours? Why that particular duration of time and no other? The number seven, I knew when I started thinking about this ten years ago, since it's such a strong number in history, myths, and religion. Some easy ones. Lucky number seven, seven days of the week, seven deadly sins, seven colors of the rainbow, seven notes to the diatonic scale. The examples go on and on. 720 has followed me for a long time, since it's the resolution for PAL video, and that it makes 30 days if you go 24 hours per day. I think 30 days is the biggest reason. 720 is also interesting mathematically since it's a harsh ad number. And also, if you take 1 times 2 times 3 times 4 times 5 times 6, it equals 720. I think this guy just has an absolutely insane brain. Yeah. And now I almost want to see I think you're half right there. You're half right there. I almost want to see it. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to sit there for 30 days unless it's just Wow. I mean, look at that picture. Look at that picture. I'm, I am in, totally intrigued now. You, you're <laughs> wow. Yeah, you're starting to. I, I'm, I'm coming to around to the longest film. And maybe I, what I really like is his just throw off everyone's idea of what film should be. Like, forget it, and let's do something totally different. I like that. Okay. Huh. Well, didn't expect that to go that way, did you? <laughs> well, no. I mean, I I get I get that, 
But there is this sense of, um, I don't know, how, how do you put it? Um, I do agree that this idea that we can, that, that our experience is the art, that, that seems to be, it's not a new phenomenon by any means, but it seems to be becoming more prevalent in our society. So, right? Oh, yeah. The, the, I, I come in and, I mean, a good example down south of us, um, there's a big multi-story building um, being renovated. A developer is going to come in and gut the whole thing. Well, a local artist who had the brilliant idea to go in and turn that into an art, an art exhibit uh, just for like a, a weekend or a week, something like that. And so he went to the developer. It worked out. They said, sure, go ahead. They're going to rip walls down anyway. So do what you want. I mean, throw paint. I don't care. It was yeah. Very cool. Yes. And so he got a bunch of artists together and they spent, I don't know, a weekend or something just creating art in there. And some of the art installations was a guy standing by a window playing a guitar. I'm sorry. What was that? <laughs> the guy is just standing by a window playing a guitar for real. Okay. So, and that was the, so you're going through as the, the, uh, art viewer yep. and you're looking at, you know, a painting and then maybe you have some, some display on the floor. And then one of them, I, I think they like ripped holes off the wall and inside the wall, they put art, you know, so that you're, it's an experience art. Oh yeah. And, and then you come into a room and then there's a few people sitting around watching someone perform something and that's art. So it's almost like you are, uh, you're involving all the different mediums. In that art, yeah. I mean, I can something like that. I mean, I can, I can totally, I can totally see it. Or you know, people take, uh, you know, uh, wood that's going to get thrown away and make something beautiful out of it. Or somebody, you know, takes a, a a picture of a perspective that you haven't really thought about or seen before. Yeah, I mean, I understand that where you look at nature and you look at things around you and you find things that are beautiful and whatnot. Um. To me, that should be the appreciation of what's going on, the appreciation of, of doing things that evoke um, emotion and whatnot. But this kind of stuff, <clears throat> to me, I, I, don't, I don't get it. And I think by me not getting it, they would say that, well, obviously I don't get it, but they would say that there's maybe something fun, to, you know, I'm closed-minded or I'm this or I'm that. But, but to spend that amount of time and energy to make something that is nothing and then your whole goal is to to let it out and then delete it um because you want to show how things are ephemeral mm-hmm. it, to, to me the the reason why he can do that is that we live in a society uh, of of such comfort, and uh, uh, we don't have to worry about security. We don't have to worry about things that actually matter. Um, we have the luxury to do that sort of stuff, and I don't know. There's something about it that that just is 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 strange to me. I mean, if he can do it, more power to him. But I just don't get it. But then the question for me is, when I see something like that, where does that end? You mean this idea that anything I want to yes. be art is art? 
Yes. So somebody could, um, uh, I mean, any, yeah, basically anything is art. So if you're a serial murderer and you want to videotape uh, killing somebody, is that art? Law-abiding citizen. Law-abiding I mean, citizen. It's an extremely dark film that proved some interesting points. But. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, uh, Robert uh, Maplethorpe uh, uh, took a crucifix and put it in a jar of yarn. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now, is that art? Well, according to him, it's art. You betcha. And and that's my concern. I, I, and I'm sure, you know, the attitude is there are no boundaries at art in art. But it seems to me there... I don't know. It just seems... It's new media, David. New media. Yeah. Well, let me tell you something. I'm not watching it, okay? you. I'm going to write him a letter and say, Mr. 28 Weber. Days was enough. <laughs> if you would have cut it back a little bit, perhaps, but that 700... 30, 30 days is just too much. That you're good, That's beyond the pale. Those dang Swedes. Oh, wait, I'm... Swedish myself, so. <clears throat> uh, this article, sorry, moving on. Why? Now I want to talk more about art. This is fun. <laughs> Oberlin College students. The university dining halls aren't exactly famous for serving gourmet dishes, but Oberlin students say their meals aren't merely bad. They are racially inauthentic and thus a form of microaggression. Okay. 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 Before you go on, I, I have a question. No, go on. Go on. Keep reading. It's, only th it's one thing to quietly gripe about the quality of dorm food. Students have likely been doing that for centuries. I doubt it. It's quite another to accuse the dining room staff of stealing from Asian culture because they didn't prepare the general Tsao chicken in the correct sauce. And yet, here's what one Oberlin student had to say about the dining hall's sushi bar. Quote, When you're cooking a country's dish for other people, including ones who have never tried the original dish before, you're also representing the meaning of the dish as well as its culture, said student Tomoyo Joshi. Yoshi. So if people... If... Okay, quote. So if people not from that heritage take food modify it, and serve it as authentic, it is, appro it is appropriative. Look that word up. What's appropriative? Appropriative? Oh, you're appropriate. Uh, you're appropri it's like appropriating it? Like yeah. you're misappropriating? Yes. Appropriative. You're taking it. Appropriative. Who knows? Man, that keyboard, keyboard you type on is so old. I know. Cultural appropriation Re Su suitable for a particular person condition occasion or fitting appropriate so. appropriative yeah so if people oh, here's the quote again so if people not from that heritage take food modify it and serve it as authentic it is appropriative no it should be inappropriate right so. appropriative would be it's correct right yeah. it, it's, it's yeah. appropriate for them ha college student sorry cultural appropriation readers will recall, allegedly occurs when people borrow the traditions of another ethnic or religious group. That's not true. Because... As uh, you will recall... Only certain... Allegedly. 
only certain groups. Mm. Keep going. Sorry. Liberal students at the Canadian University, for example, recently shut down a free yoga class for disabled students because yoga has its origins in Hinduism, meaning it doesn't belong to white people and they shouldn't practice it. This kind of thinking is actually baffling ill is actually bafflingly illiberal. Who's to say that culture itself belongs to anyone? And yet it's usually left-leaning students waging weirdly nativist campaigns of forced isolation on foreign cuisines and customs. The culinary critics at Oberlin, however, aren't just mad that the cafeteria has appropriated their culture, they're mad that it's, being, that it's been appropriated poorly. <laughs> Quote, it was ridiculous, student Deep Nguyen. Is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> Deep N- <laughs> N-G-U-Y-E-N. Oh, Nyang. Nyang. Oh, what? Nyang. <laughs> no, it is. That's Nyang? Vietnamese or, Nyang? or Hmong. Say it again. Nyang. Nyang. Yeah. Okay. D-I-E-P is the first name. Yeah, Diep Nyang. Diep Nyang. Okay. The it in question was a... Whatever. Oh, sorry. It was ridiculous. Diep Nyang said... The it in question was a, a banh mi sandwich with the wrong bun. A what? B-A-N-H-M-I. Oh. oh. Banh mi? Okay. <laughs> you you spent time in South Korea, right? Well, yeah. For a minute? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Quote, they could... How could they just throw out something completely different and label it as another country's traditional food? For one thing, the banh mi sandwich is itself the product of the blurring of cultural boundaries, French and Vietnamese. That was the, the, article, the uh, author of the article quoting that. Uh, for another, there's something deliciously ironic about Oberlin students, some of the most privileged people in the world, as <laughs> yes. evidenced by the $50,000 they pay annually in tuition. Whining about the bun thickness of meals prepared by lowly paid cafeteria workers... As academic and writer Frederick de Boer noted on Twitter, quote, when you're defending the cultural authenticity of General Tsao Chicken, you're a living Portlandia sketch. <laughs> yes! <laughs> yes! These students could certainly stand a bit of mockery. They could also stand up to broaden their horizons. For some reason, too many otherwise liberal kids think cultural transformation is a kind of genocide. Different societies have a right to stay exactly the way they are, untouched by modern, mo- modern modernity, they think. But they are just plain wrong. Blending the best elements of different social traditions and creating something new and possibly more fascinating is praiseworthy and progressive. Maybe Oberlin's banh mi sandwich should be judged not by how closely it apes the original, but whether it tastes as good. Unfortunately, the cafeteria is not the only place where Oberlin students want a kind of cultural appropriation-free space that's safe. The desire to reinforce traditional cultural boundaries also manifests itself in a new list of demands recently released by black students. Among the 14-page document's most notable items is this. Black students want a, quote, safe space for Africana-identifying students, end quote set up in each of various campus buildings. Given that white student allies of... Given that white student allies 
of protesters were ejected from similar black safe spaces at the University of Missouri and other campuses, it seems fair to assume that Oberlin radicals are proposing something akin to segregated safe spaces. Previous generations of activists fought for equal treatment and equal access to facilities for all students regardless of color. They fought against racial segregation on campuses, including at Oberlin, which betrayed its legacy of fierce opposition to slavery by segregating its campuses in, 18, in the 1880s. But it, but, it's, but it sound like separate facilities are exactly what today's radical students want. In addition to blacks only safe spaces, they want to hire more professors, administrators, and psychologists of color. They assert the right of black students, and only black students, to have the final say on the continued employment of these people. Consider this representative request. Quote, we demand a written form that assures us of the institution's commitment to increase the number of black psychologists within the counseling center. Furthermore, we demand that black students be able to sit in on the interviews of these highly qualified candidates in order to ensure that these professionals cater to the needs of the black students. We also demand the hiring of black healers slash non-Western health practitioners because not everyone finds comfort and healing solely from a psychologist, end quote. Activists also want black student leaders to be compensated eight $8.20 an hour for their organizing efforts. They want members of the Oberlin community who offended them banished. They want no fewer than four buildings renamed. If all of their demands were met, two things would happen. First, most of the items require separate and distinct services for black students. There would be a lot less racial intermixing. Second, because the cost of hiring all these new employees and providing so much services is prohibitive, tuition would skyrocket. Oberlin would become much less affordable for the very students most dissatisfied with the college. It would also become weirdly segregated. Students have every right to make unreasonable demands, even if those demands are as ridiculous as racially sensitive banh mi sandwiches and racially segregated safe spaces. But they deserve every drop of criticism that they get in return. My question uh, while you were talking here... Uh, how many people actually uh, were part of this protest? Does it say? No. Does it say what percentage of the people? No. Um, I think uh, because any time that you have some crazies that come out and say stuff like this, that's just like we want we want a billion dollars in the letter M stricken from the English language. <laughs> right. Um, you know, uh, they get publicity, but I would bet that it is a very small subset of the people of the students that are actually going to the college and this is the way the media um when they um uh, when they highlight these type of things it ex accentuates the division among races and whatnot um i th i think uh the vast majority of, of these kids wouldn't even think that way. It wouldn't even be an issue. Or if they agreed agreed to it, it's not something that they're going to spend uh, any time probably even thinking about because they have their own lives and their own things that they're going that they're going through. And to me, it just when I was uh, when you were uh, uh, 
um, reading this, it felt like, at least to me, that uh, this is just one more wedge that they're trying to put between blacks and whites and 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 uh, different races. And this person is a is a is a conservative who's, you know, writing this obviously. Um, uh, Robbie Soav is the guy's name. Yeah. Um, and that that actually was from December last year, two thousand fifteen. Mm. I I don't know I don't know why they even um why they even report it because what difference does it make um if some if if an insane person comes out and says something you you don't you're not going to report it uh I, yeah to me it just smells like uh they're they're continuing to uh try to cause more and more division among people. Well, it's working. <laughs> it's, yeah. <clears throat> this is the list of demands <laughs> that were referenced in that last article. Uh, this was to uh, the board of trustees and it lists them out. Chair, Clyde McGregor, Patricia Shank, blah, blah, blah. So it lists them all out. Uh, president. And then it goes on Oberlin College and Conservatory is an un, is an unethical institution oh from capitalizing God. on massive labor exploitation across campus to the Conservatory of Music treating black and other students of color as less than as less than through its everyday running. Huh. O- Oberlin College unapologetically acts as unethical institution antithetical to its historical vision. In the 1830s, this school claimed a legacy of supporting its black students. However, that legacy has amounted to nothing more than a public relations campaign initiated to benefit the image of the institution and not the Africana people it was set out for. Along the same lines stated by the UNC Chapel Hill students in their 2015 document, A Collective Response to Anti-Blackness, you include black and other students of color in the institution and mark them with the words, quote, equity, inclusion, and diversity. When in fact this institution functions in the premises of imperialism, white supremacy, capitalism, ableism, there you go. Ableism. And cis-sexist hetero- Patriarchy. Who wrote There's this? There's a word. Uh, uh, by the legal insurrection. Okay. So th- their demands, we demand a 4% annual increase in black student enrollment from each of the Americas, the Caribbean, and continent of Africa starting in 2016 to a- accumulate to a 40% increase by 2022. This increase must in, must occur in, in the college. Additionally, this deadline should not be taken as a reversal point back to the previous policy, and the standards of increased enrollment should be held as a minimum. Number two, we demand a concerted effort to increase the percentage of black students and specifically black female identifying instrumentalists in the jazz department. <laughs> Boy. Oh, man. Yeah, isn't, wow. isn't that stereotypical? <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> uh, 
Number 15, we demand a change in the fundamental ways that we assess knowledge at this institution, starting with a student evaluation of the effectiveness of the grading system. <laughs> That's awesome. Hi, I'm the student, and I'm going to evaluate the way you grade my test. My test. And I got an I, F, I, racist. I, I, F stands for racist. I didn't like the way you ran that test, and your grading system is not... Uh, it, it, it's appropriative. <laughs> it's not appropriative. It's inappropriative. <laughs> so, uh, oh, 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 sorry, the last piece. Uh, we will have oversight over the results of that evaluation. And then they have an A. There's no B, but they have an A. If the results state that the grading system is not reflective of this institution's student body, we demand an immediate change of that grading system. What? What? Well, yeah, I mean, it follows the rest of the demands. So if if they don't do it, uh, what's going to happen? What are they going to do? Do they say? We demand direct involvement and transparency in the process of hiring the new Oberlin College president. Okay. And I demand that gravity reverse. We demand a structural change in institutional graduation requirements. Whoa. Okay. Oh, and these are, oh, this is underlined. We demand that a mandatory professional development program be developed for faculty across departments in the college and conservatory. And I demand that Beyonce leaves Jay-Z and marries me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I demand, I mean, who cares? So if their de demands aren't met, what's going to happen? They also demand a $10,000 book fund for the Africana House Library. It is important for students of our community to stay educated and well... Wait, you're at college! And well-versed in the issues plaguing their communities, and books are one of the many tools to do so. Really? I thought that was... Um, oh, okay, books. I so thought that th was racist. This is a... Um, how many pages are... In 14. There are 14 pages in this um, document on scribed.com. Yeah, this is all social Marxism. It's all about it's all about tearing people apart rather than bringing them together. Well, and okay, here these are these are demands and not suggestions. This is the last little bit of this. If these demands are not taken seriously, okay, good. immediate action from the Africana community will follow. And what was the that, Yeah, it will follow. That's it. Okay. Okay. Uh huh. Huh. They also want, they demand that the Oberlin College stop functioning as a gentrifying institution by, uh, one, the immediate rehiring of community members who worked at the Oberlin Inn before its renovation, uh, the immediate discontinuation of the no trespass list because it disproportionately and discriminatorily targets black people from the town of Oberlin, uh, three, the immediate implementation of a free busing system, um, Four, the immediate divestment from Israel, who has exploited many African descendant what? people seeking refuge. What? Five, the implementation of a program allowing willing community members to take one course per semester for free. Uh, six, and six, the immediate establishment of a payment in lieu of taxes program by the college that is approved by the city of Oberlin. Okay, this is whatever. This is insane. Okay, we've already established that these are crazy social Marxists and nobody should take them seriously or listen to anything that they say. 
Wow. Legalinsurrection.com. I wonder, uh, oh, go to about to see who some of the, uh, the founding people they usually have uh, talk about. Oh, about. There we go. Do they have uh, like a staff listing or? Well, this is a website. Legal Insurrection went live in October 12, 2008. Originally at Google Blogger, we hit our one millionth visit about 11 and a half months later. Our second million. Who cares? Uh In August 12, we opened a related blog, College Insurrection. Legal Insurrection now is one of the most widely cited and influential conservative websites with hundreds of thousands of visitors per month. Conservative? Our work has been highlighted by top conservative radio personalities such as Rush Limbaugh and Mark Levin, and Professor Jacobson regularly appears as a guest on radio shows across the nation. Wait, wait. It doesn't sound right. Whoa, whoa. No, that can't be. Unless, hold on, let, unless they, okay, they must have put this de- Le- list of demands. They put Legal it. Legal uh, insurrection put these demands up. Right, to, right, okay. so people could so, have access. That's I okay, see. right. So, they so didn't legal write insurrection it. They, they are is the reporting ones, this yeah, or whatever. That's what it looks okay. like. Okay, okay. Okay, all right. So then uh, the people that are making the demands are, oh, I see, the Oberlin College Black Student Union uh, is are the people that are making the demands. Can you go to the Oberlin College Black Student Union and see who? Uh, uh, let me see. I'm sorry, what? 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 Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> making sure that you're still working on that old clunker. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. Do they have a website? Uh, oh, sorry. Let me see here. There's a PDF file. Ooh, June, January 20, uh, the school responded to the student demands. Oh, I hope they... Well, you know they didn't because it's Canada. <laughs> they probably said, please like us, please like us. Before winter break, my office received a document written by students containing 14 pages of demands for institutional action. Was this he do- laughing while This he was document was addressed to me, Oberlin's trustees, and our senior leadership. This is Marvin Krisloff. It was written against a backdrop of events at colleges and universities across the country, including Oberlin, that prompted passionate discussions and demonstrations related to structural and systematic racism in American higher education. I hear the frustration and the desire for change at Oberlin contained in the document, which echoes national themes and concerns about racism and justice. Oberlin College and Conservatory are deeply committed to addressing these concerns and to ensuring an inclusive and equitable educational experience for our students. We have already taken important steps on many fronts, but we are not where we want to be. We must commit ourselves to deep study of how systematic barriers persist at Oberlin despite all the substantial efforts being made by our faculty, staff, students, trustees, alumni, parents, and fellow citizens of our town. And to act based on what we learn, I invite everyone to join us in this work. Kumbaya, my lord! (laughs) We will continue to encourage later on. We will continue to encourage collaboration and frank conversation. Frank? 
Frank. Frank. Frank, Frank. We welcome the challenging, difficult, and ultimately transformative work to achieve academic, artistic, and musical excellence. I will continue to communicate with our community about opportunities to participate in these efforts. I look forward to the work and to making progress together. So he didn't answer any of their demands. Well, I mean... Nah, he didn't. February 10, there was an update. It is very true that the proportion of African-American students enrolled at Oberlin needs to increase, and as does the faculty. In my view, the experience as a teacher in inner city schools, this is from... Well, that was racist. Someone named MVC. Uh, the well, issue goes to the education of black and Hispanic students. What, starting only with, black and Hispanic people live in the inner city? Apparently, starting with kindergarten or preschool. Until the schools are prepared and committed to providing quality public education to all children, colleges and universities will have difficulty maintaining academic standards without excluding many young people who deserve the best education. Racism is still with us as a society. I'm done. Holy cow. This is the next generation, folks. Here on the David Allen Show. But we all need a little self-control.
This is the David Allen Show. DavidAllenShow.com uh, Really quick here. <laughs> um, did you hear that art or hear that story that uh, a British Airways airplane was hit by a drone um, coming into land at Heathrow uh, a couple days ago? No. Did you hear that? No. What? What? How could you not have heard it? It's all over the news. Uh, I guess I'm uh, just in my own little world. So the seven, well, no, an Airbus A320 apparently was coming into land uh, into Heathrow in London. Yep. Around 1,700 feet in the air. That's pretty close to the ground. I mean, you, you're, moving, you're, you're moving quick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say something hit the airplane, and so they're now, you know, they said, oh, drone, panic. Panic mode. Uh huh. Well, one of the ministers came out today. Uh, this article at the Telegraph. dot uh, Not a garbage newspaper. I mean, this is probably one of the biggest newspapers yep. in in London. Uh, in the news news section. So this is not opinion. <clears throat> the the drone that reportedly hit a British Airways jet earlier this week may have actually been a plastic bag. Oh. <laughs> How do you confuse those two? Well, tra- <laughs> right. Um, the transport minister, Robert Goodwill, admitted authorities had not yet confirmed whether what struck the Airbus A320 was a remote-controlled device. The collision on Sunday night is believed to have been around at around 1,700 feet near Richmond Park in southwest London, over four times higher than the legal height limit of a drone. That's true. Yeah, and, I, was, the, I was driving down the road, and I hit a deer, or maybe it was a plastic bag. Right. <laughs> well, and then they, I mean, sure, something hit the plane, they say. And so they landed, they checked it out, good to go, took off on the next flight. I would think if you hit it. So, oh, it, unless... Yeah. The danger is not even near what they say it is. Because if that airplane hit a drone coming in that, you know, it's moving pretty quick, couple what, 150 to 200 miles an hour at least at that height, I would assume. Yeah. I'm no pilot, so I don't know for sure, but it would make sense to me that you're still you're moving pretty good still. Did it say where it hit it? Uh somewhere, but it didn't even dent it. Dent. Yeah. So if if drones are so dangerous, and it was a drone that hit it, or maybe it was, 
and they need to cover it up. No, it really was nothing. Uh It was nothing because it didn't damage the airplane. Uh Because that is the fear. That's what they're all claiming. Oh, yeah. Well, it, if it gets sucked in the engine, sucked in the engine, like, you know, they... Uh, well, you suck a burn the engine, it's yeah, not good. Yeah. Right. But there's that. But it, it's the, they're saying, though, that that impact will will damage and could bring a plane down, could bring, yeah, could whatever. danger, endanger all these people. Well, you can't endanger it more than a bird, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that was interesting. Um, this is the David Allen Show. DavidAllenShow.com on Facebook at David Allen Show. Uh, We really should start doing more on the Facebook. Yes. Maybe. I mean, it's... Soon. Anyway, if you're listening, go there and like us. Heck, love us there. Do they have that option? They do. Just don't. Don't hate us. DavidAllenShow.com. Thanks for sticking with us on this fine April day. For those of you listening live, for those of you listening uh, via the iTunes or something else on your preferred uh, digital device, thanks for checking us out. Tell your friends. Yeah. I don't know. I saw this article on uh, uh, Life News. It was interesting. Uh I think one of the big one of the big issues that we have nowadays in our society is that uh, the definition of words constantly changes and it constantly shifts. Um, so tolerance means you have to accept ah, and and approve of and approve yes, of yes, whatever yes. it is. Uh, homophobia, uh, you know, uh, f- it it means fear of a homosexual supposedly. Um, but they've changed that now to uh, anything that shows that you disprove of a certain type of behavior or mm-hmm. is considered homophobia. Now, the word compassion is interesting to me, how uh, at least some people are trying to redefine <clears throat> what compassion really means. <clears throat> I saw this article, it's... Uh, uh, a Presbyterian, a Northern Ireland Presbyterian minister uh, is creating waves after she began advocating for abortion against the church's teachings. On what grounds? Well. Compassion? Compassion. Really? She told a feminist group that she believes the laws should be changed to allow abortion in certain cases. Uh, she said uh, abortion should be a, a woman's choice. So this is her quoting her. So this for me is a matter of compassion to allow mothers in particular to make that decision for themselves. I would also want to be very clear that I believe that there should be stringent processes in place around that. So, for example, in the situation of fatal 
fetal abnormality, we may we need to be absolutely certain that the information that parents receive is of the highest quality so that they are making decisions off the best evidence base that they can. Compassion. <laughs> and the same time around the rape and incest issue. Because it happens so often. <laughs> mm-hmm. The window is tight. But to give the proper support, counseling, and time to those women as they come to that decision. Beyond beyond that, I'm not anxious to extend the freedom for abortion or the freedom for choice, but I understand that there might be situations in which it might at least be possible to contemplate that. So, So now it's not about a human life. It is about compassion and that compassion is defined now for something that is convenient to you well the definition of compassion of what is compassion compassion sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others that's what google says and this is uh have you no compassion for a fellow human being <laughs> Is the example they use. Well, I mean, you can be sympathetic. Of course you could be sympathetic. But killing, killing someone out of convenience. But it's a compassionate killing. Mm. Which makes it so much better. Mm. Yeah. But it's interesting you bring that up because I have thoughts on this. And I am no woman. Although... Well, right, I mean, right now you're not. I don't right. think I am, so I'm not. Well, right now but you're not. Were I to think I was, I, I, I would be, I think. Uh, According to pop culture, anyway. Be a woman? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Donald Trump today. This uh, was um, NBC. This was Matt Lauer was asking Donald Trump, uh, him and uh, Savannah Guthrie, asking him, uh, on talking to him about the the Republicans' platform stance on the quote unborn child. They say uh, during a live broadcast, Savannah Guthrie asked Trump if he would change his platform's position on abortion. And I believe they're talking about the Republican platform. She said the Republican platform every four years has a, a, a provision. That was the quote, sorry. That states that the right of the unborn child shall not be infringed. And it makes no exceptions for rape, for incest, for the life of the mother, would you want to change the Republican platform to include the exceptions that you have? Is because apparently he holds those exceptions as uh, abortion is valid in those cases. But the Republican Party platform must not include those. And so she wonders if he will do that. And he then responds without hesitation, yes, I would, absolutely. For the three exceptions, I would. She followed up, well, would you have an exception for the health of the mother? Oh, that was one of the three. Come on, Savannah. And he concluded, I would leave it to the life, I would leave it to the life of the mother, and I would absolutely have the three exceptions. 
Now, how and why does the circumstance of the life, the circumstances around the life being created, how does that make that life valueless? It doesn't. Well, it must. Everyone holds up this this rape, incest, or life of the mother. Now, and, and here, here's my opinion mm-hmm. on the life of the mother case. If it is truly a situation that the mom is going to be killed, mom is in danger from that, in my mind, I hold that in the same category as being legally justified to shoot someone or take someone's life if my life is in danger or if someone dear to me's life is in danger. I believe I have that legal right to do that with someone that's already living. So in my mind, if the mother's life is in danger, that falls under that same category for me. Well, the life of the mother argument. If mom's going to die, then then in my mind, it would be okay then to terminate another life to save a life. Well, I... I get I get that, but but when I I guess the way that I see it is what is the objective here? Is the objective to save a life or to terminate a life? Okay. So if you're pregnant, first of all, I would uh suspect the actual number of pregnancies that will, if they come to full term, are going to kill the mother is very small. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we're talking about a very small subset, a small, uh, a small subset like incest or rape. So we're not talk. We're talking ninety, high ninety percent of all pregnancies are not part of that set. So when so when it comes to a woman's uh uh life whether she lives or dies to me the attitude is I'm trying to save this right. woman's life. Right. It, it, yeah, you're saving a life first. Yeah. So you you remove the baby however far it's developed and if it lives it lives and if it doesn't it doesn't. But you do everything for the baby, and you do everything for the mother. And so it's just, that's the attitude. Rather than looking at it from the point of view that you you want to, quote-unquote, terminate a pregnancy. But terminating a pregnancy is like saying, I'm going to put the dog <coughs> down. No, you're going to have the dog killed. Right, right. So if you So, no, you're not going to terminate a pregnancy. You're going to kill a baby. Mm-hmm. And again, this it's using words to try to uh, uh, to influence things, right? But I I just don't understand the the way that let's say someone so a woman is raped and gets pregnant. Yeah, I don't. Which in in the in know. the um, that is point zero zero percentile of time that happens. Yes, that is so minute. But even still, how does that circumstance of that pregnancy beginning make that life that was created 
worthless. Well, obviously it doesn't. Um, by by killing the baby, you're not making the rape go away. The rape still happened, first of all. Plus, there's this there's this mentality that children are a hassle, mm-hmm. that children mess up your life, mm-hmm. that children are, uh, are, are a curse rather than a blessing. And regardless of, of, of uh, how the baby was uh, conceived, whether it was in rape or any other way, like you said, there are only two options. This is either a human mm-hmm. or it's not a human. If you are going to say it's not a human, then anything goes. If you are going to say it is a human, then there are no exceptions. Because it's a human. You don't kill a human regardless of how it was conceived because it's not that human's fault. And that human has rights. doesn't matter if it's uh, in the womb or outside the womb. A human is a human. You would think. But the attitude is, again, we keep we keep coming back to this. I mean this this is the this is the issue that keeps coming back. It's all about personal rights and what what makes me happy and what what gives me potential satisfaction. So if if having uh, getting pregnant um, impedes my my freedom and my happiness. I should kill the baby. Mm-hmm. If I feel today that I should be a woman, then I should be a woman, even though I'm a man. If it makes you feel good. That is the whole... Um, and when it comes to the art, too, that's the, that's the other thing that... that it, we were talking about our art earlier and it's like whatever you imagine everybody else should should approve it should and um, applaud it and applaud yeah. it yeah 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 Because I'm happy. Huh. It was a humongous hit in the music world a couple of years ago. Huge. Because I'm happy. That, that's exactly it. That's all our society and it's all this millennial generation really seems to care about. I mean, you even see in in the church world, people are so, you know, oh, God just wants you to be happy. I don't think so mm-hmm. at all. That's not at all what I think. I, I don't think happiness is the key. Contentment no. is and joy. That's different. Um, if you ask a four-year-old what makes them happy, 
they might be looking out into a busy freeway and think, you know what would make me happy? <laughs> I want to run out there. Nice. <laughs> so happiness should yeah. not be their highest priority in your in your life, in your mind. Mm-hmm. And um, a four-year-old isn't that smart. Um, but I know a lot of adults that aren't much smarter than a four-year-old. So why should their ha- if 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 you could look at a f- at a four year old and go it's obvious that that your desires, um, your happiness, what you think is going to make you happy is actually going to destroy you. Mm-hmm. You know why can't we make why can't we uh, why can't we honestly make uh, make judgment calls about things like that. Like again, for instance, um, if you uh, have a sex change operation, you're twenty times more likely to kill yourself just by doing that. Twenty times more likely to kill yourself. If I did anything and it caused somebody to be twenty times more likely to die, if I if I owned a business and every time they came into the business, they were 20 more, t- uh, twenty times more likely to die, I would be sued or thrown into jail. Um, yet, here we have something that that is demonstrated that it's horrible for a person, that it's likely going to to lead to them killing themselves, and yet we allow it's them to championed. do it. Like a four-year-old running out into a mm-hmm. freeway. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, reality doesn't matter to people. It's all about how you feel. I saw this article, and um, I believe it was the Secretary of the Navy. Uh, um had $36 million, there was a $36 million uh, study. What? That was done by the University of Pittsburgh. $36 million? $36 million study. Of whose money? Um, our, well, our tax funds. <laughs> oh, man. And what it was set to study. I'll do a study. Two Marine Corps infantry units. One the typical one with young men and the other that was segregated with women. And it was, they were uh, to evaluate whether having a co-ed unit would diminish their capacity to, um, to fight in a war. And you mean having females at all? Yeah, having in in the group in the in um in the unit. Okay, like like one, having one, having well, it would be. Wait, what, it did, would, did they talk about the breakdown? Let me see what the breakdown is. Um, let me see here. They didn't give the breakdown. Um. But they did, the The report said, um, 
All-male task force teams outperform mixed-gender units in 69% of ground combat tasks, particularly in specialties that carry the assault load plus the additional weight of crew-served weapons and ammunition. Uh, female... Um, all male squads, teams and crews, and gender-integrated squads, teams and crews had a notable, noticeable difference in their performance of the basic combat tasks of negotiating obstacles and evacuating casualties. Um, all the female volunteers in the study were considered to, to be in above-average physical condition. The male volunteers were only an average representation of their peers. So the women were in better shape than the average woman, and the men were in, the, uh, in an average shape. And um, all male units were faster on hikes, gorge crossings, and cliff ascents. All male units engaged targets faster and scored more hits with crew-served weapons than gender-integrated units. Women had greater incidence of stress fractures. Women suffered a higher rate of injuries. Women were injured at six times the rate of their male counterparts. In the... Um, <laughs> In the 120-millimeter tank loading simulation, participants were asked to lift a simulated round weighing 55 pounds five times in 35 seconds or less. Less than 1% of the men compared to 19% of the women could not complete the task. In the 155-millimeter artillery lift and carry, where volunteers had to pick up a 95-pound artillery round and carry it 50 meters in under two minutes, Less than 1% of the men, compared to almost 30% of the women, could not complete the task. Less than 1% of the men could not negotiate a 7-foot wall, whereas 21% of the women could not. When was this study done? Uh, 2014 or 15. I was a machine gunner in the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. One of the... Uh, one of the um, the weapons that you train on is a 50 caliber machine gun. Now the 50 caliber machine gun has three parts to it. It has the receiver where the the round goes into it. It has the barrel and then it has the tripod that it's set on. Now the receiver was like 70 pounds. And this has the dual handles in the back. Yeah, right? the dual handles okay. and in the, the belt. Back. Belt. Yep, belt fed. Um, the <laughs> The uh, the barrel was, I think, like 40 pounds, and the tripod was like 50 pounds. So when you would go on a hump, on a hike, long hike, and if if that was your main weapon, um, a squad in the platoon, if it was a 25-mile hike, would have to carry that along with their pack, along with their rifle. Okay. So a 20 or 25-mile march, uh, which would take eight, nine hours to do, um, you would have to at times carry, oh, I don't know, 100, 120 pounds. If you were an M60 machine gunner and that was your weapon, that was another 20-some pounds on top of it. Um, you would have to do that for 25 miles. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, there might be one woman in a thousand that could do that. And if she did it, she could do it once. But when she was done, she couldn't continue on to fight. 
because men and women are different. And it all goes back to this sense that, uh, and I don't know how many of these women there actually are, but as a woman, I want to be able to be equal to a man and do everything that a man can do. And so I should be able to go and I should be able to be uh, uh, a machine gunner in the Marine Corps. Or I should be able to be a ranger. Yeah. Because I'm happy. Because I'm happy. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. Because I'm happy about it. And today, what makes me happy is uh, I'm a I'm a woman. Oh, now you are. Okay, but, I can see. I can see the glint in your can eyes. Can you tell now? I can see. But but actually, um, in about an hour, well, 50, 50 minutes from now. 50 minutes from now. Will be tomorrow. And then? And then I'm thinking gonna... that I'm going to be happy um, as as like a 6'1", maybe 6'2". Mm-hmm. Um, Really, really low. You, I used to be really good at shooting three-point basket in basketball. Uh huh. I'm not six foot, but I used to be pretty good. Oh, I thought dunking would be dynamite, and so I think if I can, if if I can just be, I don't know, six two or three, then at that point I can probably probably get enough jump to get to get there. Maybe I have to go to six five. Maybe, or just bring the basket down. No, no. Because I get to determine what I am. Sure, sure. Based on you're, you're me right. being happy. You're right. And what I feel like and what you're, I identify yeah. as. So I actually, tomorrow, I plan on doing this. Um, I'm going to be um, identifying as a six foot two. I don't want to be ambitious, so not five. Six foot two. Um, pretty decent basketball player. Well, good, good, good for you. Wow, that's that's amazing. That is a you, you're so brave. <laughs> you are so brave. You know, I've um, I've been talking, and, and, and you know what I expect. What? Sorry to interrupt. Um, I expect um, that I won't get discriminated against. No, you shouldn't. And so when I go out there and I go to the court, I want I I, I will demand to be treated. Absolutely. As that. Hmm? Absolutely. And so if someone that's 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 right biolo- biologically taller than me, they uh they're not allowed to guard me no. like that when I play basketball. No. Because I, no. biology doesn't matter. No, it I, I I'm identifying as a six foot three pretty good basketball player. I think great. Okay. I don't se- don't sell yourself short. Come on, honey. Um, I, I, doesn't that sound ludicrous? Well, I, I have a secret and it's, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to feel so relieved when I t- because I've, I've been talking to my, my, my counselor and, and my therapist and, um, I'm good. I'm going to have to tell my wife, but I, I have determined that I am a, a really highly masculine lesbian trapped in a man's body. 
and um, from now on, I have to start wearing flannel shirts and um, and combat boots. Um, and, so, and this, ladies and gentlemen, will be the last episode of the David <laughs> Allen Show. <laughs> episode eleven, we made it past ten. I, I we're we're done. We're done, folks. Thanks a lot for standing by. Appreciate it. All your support was dynamite. You're a great basketball player. <laughs> I could, I can see it. Uh, I don't know how anyone can use the argument the other way. I because think it, it's it has to be it has to be mocked. That's yeah, all it has to be. I know. Because it it is so it is so ludicrous. It has to be. You have to make fun of it. And you have to take it <laughs> to its logical yeah. conclusion. Otherwise. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I feel it's like silly. I'm taking crazy feels. Oh, sorry, my uh, hardware yes. malfunction. <laughs> sorry about that. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Yeah. Hey, maybe we need crazy pills <laughs> because this is what we're getting, folks. Or this. <laughs> hey, buckle up. I don't know what's worse. I don't know. Um, Kurt Schilling. Kurt Schilling was recently fired by ESPN. Oh, why did he? Uh, did he? What uh, What do he do? Um, ESPN is an inclusive company. Their values are all inclusive. Oh, um, so what does that mean? Well, it means that you can't hold an opinion that they disagree with. Or else, then you're excluded. So they're not inclusive. Shh, they are all inclusive. They're partially inclusive. ESPN is an inclusive company. Partially inclusive. No. Co- ESPN is an inclusive company. But, so it's part... Partial... Okay. Kurt Schilling has a right... This Ryan T. Anderson wrote this uh, on the Daily Signal. Kurt Schilling has a right to say biological men don't belong in women's bathrooms in whatever controversial way he wants. And ESPN has a right... To give Caitlyn Jenner the Arthur Ashe Courage Award for being a men's sport icon who now publicly identifies as a woman. And whether we agree or disagree with Schilling's message or ESPN's isn't the point. The bigger issue is that ESPN, like any other company, has a right to control its message. Which means it should be generally free to make employment decisions based on its values and not Kurt Schilling's. And certainly not the government's. So ESPN is well within their rights, without question. I agree. The same is true for religious institutions, only more so. While ESPN is committed to being, quote, inclusive, is a large corporation whose main focus is reporting sports in ways that make money. Religious institutions and some family businesses, on the other hand, have more robust substantive commitments driven by faith, not profits alone. Jewish, Christian, and Muslim schools, for example, provide comprehensive learning environments that support distinctive beliefs and distinctive worldviews. That's why parents sacrifice to save their money to send their kids there to avoid the secular liberal indoctrination of many government-run public schools and to have their children formed intellectually and spiritually in keeping with their values. So it seems all the more important that religious schools have at least the same freedom as ESPN to make employment decisions based on their sincere beliefs. 
ESPN didn't want to be associated with Kurt Schilling's message. The same is true for the bakers, florists, and photographers, only more so. They have beliefs about marriage, and that it's the union of husband and wife, and they don't want to be forced by the government to convey a contrary message. Whether we agree or disagree with the bakers, florists, and photographers isn't at issue here. At issue is their beliefs and the messages they send. Taking photographs of a gay wedding ceremony and then creating a visually appealing slideshow and photo album or arranging altar flowers for same-sex nuptials or decorating a cake with rainbow frosting and two grooms on top all convey messages these professionals say they can't send. And yet, while liberals are cheering ESPN and celebrating its freedoms, they are working to pass laws that would eliminate similar freedoms for religious institutions and wedding professionals. While they celebrate ESPN's rights, they want to deny similar rights to others. As I explain in Truth Overruled, the future of marriage and religious freedom, Amer I didn't, this is the guy writing the article, America is in a time of transition. The Supreme Court has redefined marriage and beliefs about human sexuality are changing. During this time, it is critical to protect the right to disagree and the civil liberties of those who speak and act in accord with what Americans had always believed about marriage, that it is a union of husband and wife. If you're cheering ESPN today, remember that freedom needs to be a two-way street. Even if you disagree with the beliefs of religious schools and bakers, protect their freedoms. Respect everyone's rights, even if, especially if, you disagree with them. So ESPN can fire Kurt Schilling because he said something they didn't agree with about a social issue that the other side is pushing hard to say that no one else can disagree with. Yeah. Uh, problem with all this, I mean, tell me if you agree, um, is this battle was fought... Back in the 60s, the same principle was fought back in the 50s and the 60s, where in the 50s and 60s, it was established that somebody couldn't deny, a business owner couldn't deny service to a black person if they were white. They couldn't deny them service simply because they were black. At that point, when that, when that decision was made and, uh, it became the government the government had the right to force you to do things contrary to your personal belief now no matter how horrible your belief is and how uh you know how reprehensible it is all it takes is for that value or, or what the uh, the government deems appropriate and inappropriate to change. And what at one time was a right as a business owner to deny whatever services to whomever, you no longer can do that. So all the government has to do is, is just switch their value systems. And now, how can you... If, if you're a horrible... Uh, racist and you don't want to serve a black person even though this is your business that you built up with your own hands if you if you have to serve them because the government says so 
you have to do what the government says. You've lost some freedom. Because that precedent has already been set. Yes. You, that freedom has already been mm-hmm. lost. I'm not saying that it was good. I I totally ag- ag- agree that that is bad. But I think the minute, as a business owner, you could no longer decide across the board who you're going to serve and who you're not going to serve, that right was taken away, in my opinion. I think you're right. Yeah. But, you, I mean, for you to even bring that... Use that analogy. I know. Oh, yeah. you, you're, you're for segregation? Yeah, you're for exactly. racism? How exactly. dare you? But if you were for the, the um, um, you know, capitalism, if you were for uh, uh, the free enterprise system, what the free enterprise system, and I understand that down south there was such uh, entrenched racism that was going on that there was probably no easy there was probably no way or no easy way in any way shape or form that you could change that Mm -hmm. so i i mean i i get it um so you know i so you can't necessarily look back and say you know what were what were they thinking they were idiots back then but once that happened you know the horse is out of the barn. Does this go back to the the downside and the detriment of a government trying to regulate a moral issue? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. It, I mean, it would be regulating I mean, a moral can, issue. Can, can we almost but say that... But it does it that... all the time. Like, like, murder is a moral issue, and the government regulates that uh, mur- murder is wrong, or rape is a, you know... So the government does can and do that uh, and does that uh, drugs that's a moral issue, um, you know. So it's it's one of, it's one of these things that I don't know if there's because there, uh, I, you know I don't I mean there's no easy solution other than changing the constitution to put an amendment in the constitution that people can do that, but then. The problem, you don't ever want to do that, especially now in, in this day and age, because if you create another constitutional convention... Oh, man. They could they could slip anything in. <clears throat> they mm-hmm. could change everything. They could say, well, we're going to vote on this and then change it. I mean, so... I, and I don't know. And, and the whole character of people in the nation has changed so dramatically. Is there any, you know, is there any hope left? Um. I mean, of course, there's always hope left. Kind of. But uh, something, I mean, this is going to come to a head, and uh, we're going to, there's going to be a crisis that's going to determine, you know, the character and the destiny of our nation. What do you think? I think we're all doomed. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is sad. Because the the entire like the feel of our culture is just unfortunate. Wilmington, Delaware today, a 16-year-old student uh died after she was assaulted by several other students in a high school bathroom. Mm. Where was that at? Wilmington, Delaware. 
Really? Delaware? Huh. They were fighting over a girl, sophomore in high school. Who who was fighting over a girl? Two girls, and then a bunch of other girls jumped one of them and oh. knocked her head and died. Okay. Girl died. So I, I bet it was probably one of those things that happens in a fight. You punch somebody, they go down there, and when they go down, their head hits the ground, and there's a traumatic brain injury, and they die kind of probably something like that, not like they... And it stab her to death or anything no, like that. But, but the, it was two girls fighting, apparently, yeah. over a boy. And then other girls jumped on the one girl and... Something happened. She died. Yeah. I In high school, at 16. That's fantastic. Yeah. I've always... Uh, um, I've always had this sense... Uh, before I would ever get into a fight or get into the situation where I could get into a fight, I always had this thought that all it takes is one punch and you can actually kill somebody. And it always kept me from... From punching people? Yeah. from. <laughs> I, mean it, I mean, it did in a sense because all it takes is one weird little screw-up. Like, I... <laughs> I, I, I saw an article today. It was talking about uh, there was this uh, uh, cargo plane crash in Afghanistan where 11 um, uh, uh, service people died, American service people died. Okay. And the cause of it was um, when they were loading the plane or they were doing something in the back of the plane they needed to to hold this lever down so that the, a certain elevator would go up in the plane so that so the pilots put this uh night vision goggle case propped it up against it to um to make uh part of the plane uh one of the uh uh elevators in the plane when they were uh uh, loading it to go all the way up to the top and they didn't have to hold it down, hold the lever down. Well, 50 minutes went by and they forgot about it and they took off and it was in the same position and it caused the plane to go into this steep um, uh, a climb and as the pilots were wandering around trying to figure out, trying to stop it and figure it out, it lost at altitude and crashed into the ground because of some stupid little thing that somebody forgot that that has probably happened a hundred times before. Mm-hmm. I mean, consider you're driving down the road and something comes on the radio and you reach over to the radio. I've done this before and I'm fiddling with the radio and then I look on the road and I think, I think <laughs> what, what just happened? Yeah, I think I've been driving <laughs> yeah. for an, a, a mile and... Did I hit anybody? I don't know. Was it a deer? Was it a plastic bag? Huh? See how I brought that <laughs> call work, back? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And that's horrible about that 16-year-old girl. Yeah. And more than likely, it just, you know, was a fluke. But. But. Do you know who Camille Peglia is? Yes. She's lesbian. Life, I mean, big time liberal. She wrote in for Salon magazine. Uh, 
Salon.com today. Oh boy. Enough with the Hillary cult. Her admirers ignore reality. Dream of worshiping a queen. <clears throat> what is it with the Hillary cult? She says, as a lifelong Democrat who has enthusiastically who will be enthusiastically voting for Bernie Sanders in next week's Pennsylvania primary, I have trouble understanding the fuzzy, rosy filter through which Hillary fans see their campaign. So much must be overlooked or discounted. From Hillary's compulsion, compulsive money lust, and her brazen indifference to normal rules, to her conspiratorial use of shadowy surrogates and her sociopathic shape-shifting in policy positions for monetary expedience. Hillary's breathtaking lack of concrete achievements or even minimal initiatives over her long public career doesn't phase her admirers a whit. They have a religious conviction of her essential goodness and blame her blank track record on diabolical sexist obstructionists. When at last week's debate, Hillary crassly blamed President Obama for the disastrous Libyan incursion that she had pushed him into, her acolytes hardly noticed. They don't give a damn about international affairs. All that matters is transgender bathrooms and instant access to abortion. That's interesting that she is pushing this. I'm starting to wonder, given the increasing dysfunction of our democratic institutions, if the Hillary cult isn't perhaps register, registering an atavistic longing for monarchy. Or perhaps it's just a neo-pagan reversion to idolatry, as can be felt in the Little Italy Street Festival scene of The Godfather Part Two, where devout pedestrians pin money to the statue of San Rocco as it is carried by in procession. There was a strange analogy to that last week when Sanders supporters satirically showered Hillary's motorcade with dollar bills as she arrived at George Clooney's Lux fundraiser in Los Angeles. The gushy indulgence around Hillary in the Manhattan media was typified by Vanessa Friedman's New York Times piece, Hillary Clinton's Message in a Jacket. After last week's debate, evidently oblivious to how she was undermining the rote sexism plank in the Clinton campaign platform, Friedman praised Hillary for, quote, playing the clothing card against Sanders. Hillary's long white coat made her look like New York's white knight riding to the rescue. Gee, that sure wasn't my reaction. My thought first was, why is Hillary wearing a lab coat? My second was, isn't this a major gaffe reminding people of abortion clinics? My third was, the big belted look is not recommended for those broad in the beam. No! Wow! For all the complaints about an alleged higher scrutiny suffered by women candidates, affluent politicians like Hillary can afford glam squads of stylists and an infinite range of clothing choices, hairstyles, and cosmetic aids. Male candidates with their boring cropped hair and sober suits fade into the woodwork when the queen bee flies in. This is fascinating. Coming from Camille. Hmm. The, pro- the protective major media f- phalanx around Hillary certainly extends to her health issues, which only the Drudge Report has had the courage to flag. In assessing possible future occupants of the White House, the public has an inalienable right to know. I was incredulous at the passive gullibility of the media including the New York Times last July, when a woman internist identified as Hillary's doctor 
released a summary letter about her health that was lacking in specifics one would normally expect in medical records. Does anyone really think that world-renowned Hillary, whose main residence for years has been in Washington and not Chappaqua, has as her primary physician an obscure young internist in Mount Kisco, New York? It's ludicrous on the face of it. And what about that persistent cough? Allergy season, the hacking Hillary claimed on a New York radio show this week. Quote, you all right? Any mouth-to-mouth CPR joke to host? I'm just a PhD, not an MD, but I'll put my Miss Marple hat on here. Am I the only one who noticed Hillary's high wrap collar? Pallid, puffy face and bulging eyes during her choleric New Hampshire primary concession speech in February? Another unusually high collar followed the next morning. My tentative theory is that Hillary may have sporadic flare-ups of goiter worsened under stress. Coughing is a symptom. High collars mask a swollen throat. In serious cases, an operation may be necessary. Is this chronic thyroid condition disqualifying in a presidential candidate? Certainly not in my view, but I don't like being lied to by candidates, campaign staff, or their media sycophants. Hillary's roadmap to the Democratic nomination was written by Tricky Dick Nixon, who, after his acrimonious defeat in 1962 California gubernatorial race, doggedly restored his standing in the GOP by doing the, quote, rubber chicken circuit, building up the grassroots connections that allowed him to win the White House six years later. Similarly, Hillary has spent the years since her 2008 loss to Obama in deepening and tightening her relationships with state and local Democratic politicians, community leaders, and urban ministers nationwide, for whom she has assessed assets of infinite largesse. When pro-Hillary media taunt Bernie Sanders about what his campaign has or has not financially contributed to lower-level Democratic races, they are foolishly exposing Hillary's modus operandi. Nixon's rubber chicken has turned into one mighty gilded bird. Ooh. Apparently, not everyone likes Hillary. Yeah, I think that, that was would be kind a of fair a, consensus. A large takedown by Camille. Yeah, but she's she's done that before in the past. So she... As far as uh, being a, uh, a Democrat, she she sometimes uh, is quite uh, lucid, I guess you could say. Doesn't completely um, drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> she was born in uh, 1947. Uh, Camille Hen Paglia is an American academic and a social critic. Paglia has been a professor at the University of Arts in Philadelphia since 1984. Mm. The New York Times has described her as first and foremost an educator. (laughs) She is known for her critical views of many aspects of modern culture. She has two collections of essays, Sex, Art, and American Culture, and (laughs) Vamps and Tramps. (laughs) Wow. That's both sides of the spectrum, huh? <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Whoa. Some feminist critics have characterized her as an anti-feminist feminist. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, the fact that she just ripped apart Hillary. I, I mean, if a Republican did that, whoa, maybe. Yeah. Well, you uh, but hate she, women, obviously. She, but she's yeah. Uh, but she's done that in the past. I mean, I've read I've read uh, columns from her where yeah. she's been very critical <laughs> of some you know some of the more ridiculous uh, Democrat things. <clears throat> I mean, to the point where you're like, is she? Republican, right? You know. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Well, this is the David Allen Show. DavidAllenShow.com. We are in it to win it. I don't know what we're winning, but we're in it. We are. <laughs> I thought we <laughs> stepped in it. Well. Uh, this humorous. The Facebook page called Keep Portland Weird shared a picture two days ago, April 19. Is the picture of a glass door of a liquor store or a window. And on it's a handwritten note that's... <laughs> it says... <laughs> Due to rising summer temperatures, we will not, underlined, be accepting boob or sock money. (laughs) (laughs) Questionably moist bills are subject to denial. We're sorry, but it's unsanitary. (laughs) I'm sorry, that $20 bill, it's too wet. We're not going to take it. We're keeping our liquor. That's just not, that's not just common sense. That's a way of life. (laughs) I'm sorry, I can't take your money. It's too wet. But I just came out of the water. Too bad. (laughs) This is the David Allen Show. Wrapping up this episode, number 11. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Next week, it'll be in... Even an baker's even, an even dozen. dozen. <laughs> Not an even baker's dozen. Even baker's dozen. No. 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 That'll be the next week. <laughs> That'll be the one after that. So does that mean that we get donuts? What? Who? Huh? It, uh, I mean, should we get donuts on the baker's dozen episode? Yeah. Or, uh, uh, no? I don't know. Sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Done. <laughs> We'll, we'll call in the interns to do that. Oh, yeah. And while we're at it, we'll have the interns give us a medical report. Ooh. Hey, if Hillary can do it, yeah. so can we. David Allen Show. Uh, every week, uh, we were a little late today on the live stream. Because of me. That's because again. of David again. 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 At least we didn't have to do it on a Friday. Yeah, that's again. true. That's true. <laughs> oh... Sorry. Such fun. Such fun indeed. I think that our society is going wonder smashingly. Woo! Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mine is. We will be back again next week. Here at this same time on these same stations. On Power 109.3. Point cool, 103. 
109. It's not even a 109. 109. It's not even a 109. 110. <laughs> KDAS. Is that what? Is that a real one? <laughs> I'm sure it is. Yeah. W D A S. Cool 108. <laughs> Sorry. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful evening on this. Uh, ooh. End of the show. Yeah. Any parting words, David? Toodles. That's it, really? Yep, that's it. That's a parting word. Yeah, uh, uh, ubiquitous. Huh. That's a parting word. <laughs> the part partying? A partying <laughs> word. Woo! Jihad. Jihad? What? Jihad. There is a company down in Missouri. Their initials are ISIS. <laughs> and in internal documents, they actually use the acronym. <laughs> they use that. And ISIS. Really? At some point, you probably shouldn't. Yeah. You never know. I suppose that's a lot like people who were named Adolf in the 20s and right. in the 40s and they decided to change their yeah. name. Yeah. This from ESPN tonight. Prince's death was felt across the globe Thursday, including in the realm of sports. The pop star, the po sorry, the pop superstar was found dead at his home in suburban Minneapolis. According to his publicist, he was 57. Whoa. Warriors guards... Stephen Curry initiated the playing of Prince on the stadium speakers. The Los Angeles Clippers also played Prince's music during their off-day practice on Thursday. But it was Prince's ties to football that really resonate. In 2015, Billboard magazine proclaimed Prince's 2007 Super Bowl halftime show at Dolphin Stadium the greatest performance in the history of the event. Undeterred by a driving rain, Prince played the Creedence Clearwater Revival classic Proud Mary, Jimi Hendrix's iconic version of Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower, and his own hits Let's Go Crazy in 1999. The climax was his performance of Purple Rain as showers created the perfect stage for his unique flair for the dramatic. <laughs> he was also a huge Minnesota Vikings fan. He was? Well, he lived there. Well. You'd think. And he was purple. Duh. I mean, they, huh? but isn't, I thought his was more lavender than purple. <laughs> well, so that everyone, we are, uh, we all mourn the loss of Prince. I, 
Okay. You know what's you know what's neat about his art? What? It was purple. It never got deleted. Oh yeah! Wow. <laughs> Very close-minded. <laughs> Callback number three. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to our uh, craziness as we carry on this this uh, legacy that we're creating. Don't worry, this original um, will not be shredded. <laughs> it's going to be found on iTunes. It'll be on our website at davidallenshow.com. And this is The David Allen Show. Good night. Sayonara. <laughs>